0: All right, it's good to see you all. Um, I thought I'd be brave and not wear a jacket today, baby steps. Um, but uh, if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay. Uh, if you're new here, I know it's not easy to try out a new church, so welcome. Uh, I'm only, I've certainly been three weeks since I joined this ministry, uh, and already I can tell you it is an awesome community to be a part of, uh, just a bunch of people that love Jesus, love his word, and enjoy worshipping him. Um, so just before we begin, uh, just following on from what Nathan just uh, just shared, um, I did think I well, I thought I'd jump the gun a bit. It is going to be announced next week. Um, but father school is something that I'm very passionate about because I actually attended uh, before COVID. The last in person father school that they held was I think in 2019, shortly after I got married. Um, and what it is, it's a parent ministry. It's not affiliated with any particular one church, but it's a bunch of men. Uh, that come together and desire to equip young, don't, actually I say young, just men in general, uh, that are married, um, it's called father school. I attended father school when I wasn't wasn't a father, I'm still not a father yet, um, but you don't have to be a father to attend father school. Uh, it goes through content on how to be a more loving husband, uh, how to be a godly, biblical man, um, and it really gives you a lot of tools um, in the context of a a wider community uh, to just equip you for marriage um, and hopefully fatherhood in the future. So it is on the 18th, 19th, and the 25th and the 28th of March. So two weekends. um, It goes from 5.30 to 10 p.m., so so it is quite long, uh, but I can assure you it is well worth uh, the investment. Uh, It's just, think of it as a short investment to build uh, a healthier marriage in the future. Alright, so, following on from that, uh, we are going to jump into today's passage. It comes from Mark chapter 3. And we are going to read from verse 7 to 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. I think I sent verse 8 to 19 uh, to the staff, so I apologize for that. Uh, It's from verse 7. And the Word of God reads, Jesus withdrew, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Altheus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, or Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, We've each gone through a different type of week. Uh, Some of us, the week might have been satisfying. Uh, For some of us, it might have been burdensome, and for a lot of us, it it just might have been a struggle. Uh, But Lord, I thank you that in this moment that we can come together and worship Your Son together, and delve into the Scriptures to receive healing through Your Word, insight through Your Word and transformation through the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray to be able to preach, preach clearly. I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you recall the last few passages of Mark's gospel, uh, you'll remember that the opposition against Jesus and his ministry, it was starting to ramp up, uh, and they were starting to become more and more aggressive Uh, The Pharisees, in last week's passage, saw Jesus heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, like a toothpick claw of a hand. Jesus restored it to its original former self, and in reaction to this, witnessing this healing on the Sabbath, the Pharisees begin conspiring with the Herodians, and they begin plotting the death of Jesus And what's crazy is that we're only in chapter 3 of a 16-chapter gospel. Jesus has barely begun his ministry, and already people are planning his death. Now, whilst the religious leaders have nothing but hatred for Jesus, and they're conspiring against him, the news about Jesus and everything he's doing, the good news, is spreading like wildfire. And this news that's spreading, uh, it's motivating people from all over the land to come out in droves to see Jesus. Uh, It's to such an extent that verse 7 tells us that they had to withdraw to the sea, presumably the Sea of Galilee. And the reason was because people who had come out to see him, the people were no longer just the people of Capernaum. And it wasn't just the regions of Galilee. But verse 7 tells us it was people from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Uh, you're probably wondering where on earth are these places, and if you flick through your Bible, if you have a hard copy of a Bible uh, growing up in church, you might have noticed these colorful maps uh, in your Bible, maybe in the middle, or sometimes it's at the back. Um, but if you ever look at these maps, uh, you'll find one which is Uh, usually a map of the New Testament that follows the ministry of Jesus. Usually they entitle it Palestine under the Roman Empire or something along those lines. Um, But if you look at this map, you'll find that Tyre and Sidon covered the northern western region, so to the north and to the left uh, of Galilee and Capernaum. That's where Tyre and Sidon encompasses. Judea, Idumea, and Jerusalem covered, covered the region south of Galilee, Uh, So, the whole region to the south, that's Jerusalem, Aramea, Jerusalem. And then the the expression beyond the Jordan. If you look at the map, you'll see a a river Jordan that goes from up, from top to down. Um, It covers the eastern part of the map. So, to the east of Galilee, so to the right of the river. That's beyond the Jordan, and that covered the east. So, north, south, east, west, um, people from all over the land are coming. To see Jesus in Galilee, and if you measure the distance, like some of your maps will have, like a a, um, a legend or like a, a measurement to show what the distance is. Uh, I measured it out yesterday. So I'm a bit of a geek, um, and it roughly covers the distance from Greenacre all the way to Newcastle, around that distance. So people imagine walking from Newcastle to Greenacre just to see Jesus, like that that distance. And not only that, out of desperation, these people are bringing anyone from their family, friends, any of their loved ones that are sick and ill, suffering from every kind of ailment under the sun, they're bringing them along as well. It was a ridiculous amount of people. And so what Jesus does is he tells his disciples, I want you to get a boat ready, because you know what, at this rate, I'm physically going to get crushed. And um, you have to remember Though that these people were desperate. Uh, these people that brought their sick loved ones, uh, they were desperate for an audience with Jesus. Um, and they knew that given the size of the crowds, they probably wouldn't get a one-on-one meeting with Jesus. So they were so desperate that they were hoping that even by touching Jesus or having their loved ones touch Jesus, that they'd be able to experience some kind of Healing or manifestation of his healing power. Let me read verses 10 to 12 for you. It says, For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is pretty insane. And I know, if you're like me, um, most Christians... I tend to do this. Uh, I read this passage in, passage in the past and I te- had this tendency to just kind of gloss over it. Like, yeah, he healed people. He walked around, healed people, no big deal. Um, but you need to really take a moment to stop and soak in what's actually taking place in this passage. Because if you think about it, Jesus and his disciples, they're pushing through a crowd. It's not just a small gathering of people. It's not even a large, ga- large gathering of people. But it's to such an extent that Jesus is on the verge of being physically crushed to death. And these people, out of desperation, have brought all their sick ones, their, their loved ones that are sick, injured, that you know, ailments that no doctor could cure. And the moment that they touch Jesus, healing comes upon them. Like, think about this for a moment. Imagine a sea of people, broken arm, leprosy. Migraines, depression, anxiety, you know, broken leg, amputees, shriveled hand. The moment they touch Jesus, you know, if you've got a broken arm, bang, your arm's restored. Leprosy, your skin's restored. Deformity of the body, your body's restored. Amputee, your arm grows back to its former self. The moment they touch Jesus, their body is restored. It's crazy. And it's not like one by one, it's just, A whole crowd of people. The moment Jesus touches them, it's just this trail of restoration and healing as Jesus pries his way through this crowd. Now, I mentioned in the previous sermon or previous sermons that the healings and miracles that Jesus performed, and this is a disclaimer for whenever we read about healings and miracles, the healings and miracles that Jesus performed, the purpose of these healings and miracles wasn't So that we can become faith healers and emulate these healings and miracles. The signs that Jesus performed were exactly that. They were signs. And what's the purpose of a sign? It's to point and direct us to something. And in this instance, the signs of Jesus were signs to point and direct us to who he was. Just like the pieces of a puzzle that you put together... If you read through the Gospels, if you read through the words of Jesus and the signs he performs, you'll find that as you put them together, they uncover a greater picture of who Jesus is. Last week, uh, we saw, for instance, that Jesus, uh, as he had that confrontation with the Pharisees and he healed the man with the withered hand, we put that together and we find a revelation that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The second person of the triune Godhead who in Genesis created the universe. And Genesis, the book of Genesis, believe it or not, holds a significant key in understanding exactly what's taking place in today's passage uh, when people are being healed as Jesus walks among them. Because if you read through Genesis, most people have when they start reading plans, they start with Genesis. If you read Genesis 3, you'll see the fall of man. Adam and Eve, given to temptation, they disobey God, eat of the forbidden fruit, and they're exposed to the curse of sin. The curse of sin then results in separation from God and spiritual brokenness. The curse of sin results in death becoming a reality for man, and as much as we might try our hardest to prolong our existence. My wife keeps telling me to exercise and eat healthy, which I'm I'm trying my best, um, to live a long, healthy life. But it's an uphill battle, isn't it? Because as hard as we try to prolong our existence, ultimately our bodies are doomed to be subject to illness, aging, and eventually we're going to wither away and die. So keeping this in mind, Uh, This Genesis account actually gives us the lens through which to read today's passage and understand a glimpse of what's actually going on. Because remember, Jesus, why has he come? He's come to go on a rescue mission to save mankind from their sin and from the curse of sin. This same curse of sin that resulted in man's soul, becoming fractured, broken, and separated from God. The same curse of sin that's resulted in humanity having to live day by day, watching our bodies break down, our minds break down, as the day of our death draws inevitably closer. And yet, in today's passage, it's almost like a taste or a sneak peek at what happens when Jesus reverses The curse of sin. Because in today's passage, we get a snapshot of humanity not separated from God, because what's happening? God incarnate is walking with his people. We get a snapshot not so much of the curse of man leaving man broken and ravaged with illness, but we get a taste of Jesus, what's going to happen when he fulfills his kingdom, because we get a taste of Jesus reversing the curse of sin. By bringing healing and restoration wherever he goes, and like I said, the purpose of these signs—it's not for us to stand there and gawking at the sign. How stupid would that be? Like, imagine a sign pointing you to something amazing, and you're just looking, you just looking—you spend all that time looking at that sign. going, that's an amazing sign. It's made of very nice wood, painted immaculately. No, the whole point of a sign is to point you to something greater. And as amazing as today's passage is, it's merely a taste or a sneak preview of the greater glory that's going to come. The point of these verses and the healings in the gospel isn't just to show us us that Jesus heals people, but to show that something bigger, something much better is coming. And as believers of the gospel and as followers of Jesus, we know that this great thing that is to come is the eternal life that we receive by grace through faith, where we become citizens of an eternal kingdom. We become a part of something bigger that is forever. One day, we're going to have resurrection bodies. We might try our best to prolong this life eat healthy, exercise, but we know that death is coming. But one day, there is going to come a day when sin, death, and the brokenness of everyday life that crushes our souls in this life will have no place in the next life as we live eternally with our King. Now, we see that Jesus doesn't just heal in today's passage, uh, but he continues to exercise demons. I love reading passages about exorcism. I'm very fascinated because I love horror movies. Um, but he exercises and casts out demons in today's passage. Verses 11 and 12 read, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You know what's crazy? Is that when you read about the encounters that Jesus has with demons with Satan and his minions throughout the gospels what's crazy is that Satan has amazing theology he has an immaculate crisp crystal crystal clear understanding of who Jesus is now, if you compare that with everyone that Jesus has encountered up until this point, including his disciples, they've totally missed the point. Except for, the, except for John the Baptist, they've totally missed the point of who he is. Because remember, everyone in Capernaum up until this point, they thought he was a great preacher, they were, he was a great healer, he was an exorcist, spoke with authority, had some kind of authority, maybe was someone sent by God, but they totally missed the point that he was the son of God. But the demons seem to know exactly who he is. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demons say to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In today's passage, Mark chapter 3, verse 11, you are the Son of God. If you read on two chapters later, Mark 5, 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? One of my... New Testament Testament lecturers at SMBC, uh, when I studied a theology class, he said to me, theology that doesn't lead to doxology is nothing more than idolatry. Theology that doesn't lead to doxology is nothing more than idolatry. And now you're probably wondering what do those terms mean? It literally means a study of God that doesn't lead to a worship of God is nothing more than idolatry. And we see that in the demons. Because they have a crystal clear understanding of who God is. And we would do well when we study the scriptures to make sure we're not just accumulating knowledge and good theology, but that theology should lead us to a higher worship of Jesus. Now, why would Satan publicly refer to Jesus using an accurate title? Why would he refer to Jesus with accurate theology? Remember, say, Satan, what is he? He's the great deceiver. He is the ultimate liar, the one that wants our downfall. Why wouldn't he want to deceive people in this instance? Why wouldn't he say, Jesus, the great creation of God, who's not really God? Why would he say, Jesus, you are the son of God? Well, the answer to that question, believe it or not, we can actually get from horror movies, exorcism movies. because, um, And here's why. If you've ever seen, has anyone seen The Exorcist? No? Alright. If you've ever seen The Exorcist, like I I shouldn't recommend to watch, but if you love horror movies, watch The Exorcist. Um it's my sister made me watch it when I was five. Um so I have an early connection with that movie. But if you watch Exorcism movies in general, you'll find that Catholic priests they'll come in with this nice like sash with a cross, like a, usually a purple sash with a cross embroidered on it, and they'll come in with a prayer book written in Latin and some holy water, and you'll find that they'll splash water, and, and, the, you know, and they'll recite prayers, and they'll recite them in Latin, and they'll try to cast the demon out in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They'll say, say it in Latin, in e nomine patre, Filii spirit, sancti. Uh, yeah, that, that's how much I've watched horror movies. I didn't even study Latin, but I memorized that phrase. Um, but in these movies, one way you find that they cast out the demons, and it's synonymous with all exorcism movies, is that they tell and command the demon, identify yourself. Have you ever noticed that? Identify yourself. Give me your name. If you've seen Constantine as well, it's another exorcism movie, Keanu Reeves. He demands the demon to identify himself. And believe it or not, there's actually a loose biblical basis for this. Uh, Because if you read through the creation account, uh, after God creates Adam and Eve, God tasks Adam uh, with naming all the creatures on earth in creation, all the things that crawl in the, crawl on the earth, all the birds that fly into heavens, he commands Adam to name these creatures and he gives them dominion or power or authority over these creatures. And so in essence, this idea of being able to name something, call something by its name, is really a, a means of trying to exercise some sort of an authority. And so whenever you see Satan crying out, Jesus, the Holy One of God, and accurately referring to his title, what it is, is really a pathetic attempt by Satan to try and exercise some kind of authority over Jesus. But you find it's a futile effort because all they can do as they cry out is fall down before the king. And you find Jesus, uh, Mark, writes it in a very polite way in verse 12. Um, but verse 12 really is Jesus telling the demons to shut your face. That's, that's in essence what he's telling the demons to do. Um, but that's more of a side note. Uh, we'll move on. Verse 13, we find the transition. It says, He went up on the mountain and called to him whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, mountains, if you read through the Old Testament or the New Testament, you'll find that mountains have a symbolic significance to God's people. If you go through the Old Testament or the New, uh, you'll see that mountains represent a meeting place with God, kind of like Moses going up Mount Sinai, for instance. Um, It also represents a place of prayer. We find that the Lord Jesus often went secluded into into the secluded mountains to spend time alone with God in prayer. You find that the mountains symbolize a place of decision, a place of revelation, and a place of instructions, because the mountain, for instance, is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And it's no different in today's passage. Uh, Jesus calls 12 men to himself, and they're people that verse 13 tells us that Jesus desired. He wanted these men. Who were these men? Well, if we read verses 16 to 19, it says that he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, or the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who were these guys? Um... If you watch the Jesus movies, you'll find, you know, if, you, if you've ever watched Jesus movies growing up, they used to play them on TV all the time. Um, they kind of got actors to, I, I don't, it's not a good comparison to make, but it, it just reminded me of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Like this kind of dopey, like just innocent, like very pure hearted. Um, but were these guys really like that? Um, I don't think so. And we know that because, you know, the first four men listed in these verses, uh, they were fishermen by trade, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Peter uh, was quite a stubborn, impulsive guy. He was a bit of a hothead. Um, When Jesus was arrested, it's Peter that draws his sword and cuts the ear off one of the servants. Uh, This Peter, who Jesus builds the church upon He's really a guy that speaks before before he thinks. Um, James and John, uh, we find that they're not much different either. Uh, You don't get a nickname like the Sons of Thunder uh, by being a kind-hearted, gentle soul. Um, In fact, if you read in Luke 9, um, you find what James and John are like. in Luke 9, you find that uh, Jesus goes to a Samaritan village to share the gospel. The Samaritans reject Jesus because he's a Jew. Um, they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. There was like a racial prejudice against each other. And they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And the sons of thunder, how do they react to this? Luke nine fifty four. James and John. These are the words of James and John after the Samaritans reject Jesus. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire? to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) Sons of thunder. These are the types of guys that James and John were. And Jesus responds, obviously, by rebuking them, like, what are you guys doing? Come on. Now, these guys, these 12, uh, they were very rough around the edges. And if you look further on in the list, you see Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who we explained a few weeks ago that you know he wasn't this innocent victim that was an outcast of society. He made himself an outcast because he really was the modern-day version of the mafia in the New Testament. He he ripped people off, extorted people. He was dabbled in loan sharking, um, charged people excessive tax, and really was a traitor to his own people. Um, and then you have Simon the Zealot. What was a zealot? zealot? Uh, for those of you that played StarCraft One back in the day, probably familiar with that term, zealot, or maybe you called it a zealot. Um, the zealots, uh, if you were ever wondering, uh, they were actually uh, a patriotic independence group, uh, like a independence fighters. Uh, if you think of, like, Korea back in the day when they were oppressed by the Japanese, they, they were, like, modern-day... Independence fighters that were willing to assassinate people for their political cause. Uh, so, in essence, Simon the Zealot came from an organization that were really terrorists that were that were willing to kill for a political cause. Um, the Zealots were known for carrying daggers, these, these curly-shaped daggers called the Sakaris. And you know, they were at such an extent that if they saw a Roman politician or a soldier just by himself and no one was looking, they wouldn't have hesitated they would have murdered that man in a split second if they had the opportunity. This was the type of guy that Simon was. And then there was Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If you equate that to modern-day currency in the 21st century, it's not even a week's rent. It's like $300. Um, These group of people, overall, I'm not saying every single one of them, but overall, the majority of them really We're a group of undesirables. And yet today's passage shows us that Jesus absolutely desired them. And not only desired them, but called them to be apostles. Now the word apostles in the Greek very similar, apostolos, which is the plural form. Apostolos is the singular, but it's apostolos, and apostolos has two connotations. Um, The first is a connotation that we can all identify with. And it literally means an individual or people that are sent, usually to proclaim a message. And so there are times when apostolus, this context is used, like you're sent, like Barnabas, I think his name meant the son of encouragement. Barnabas is sometimes referred to as an apostle, and it's referred in this context, that he's just someone that's sent to proclaim a message. And in that sense, I guess all, all followers of Christ can identify with that definition of apostolus or apostle. However, the New Testament uses the term apostle in another sense, and that is in the sense that an apostle is someone that holds a title or an office with a particular authority. It is a specific position of status within the church. And Jesus appoints 12 in this passage. And if you read on in the book of Acts, you'll find that you know, after Judas kills himself, they replace him with Matthias. And later, the apostle Paul becomes an apostle as well. These, I want to make clear, are the only people ever to qualify for the office and the title of apostle in this sense, in this definition, this authoritative position of apostle because the New Testament tells us there are unique requirements to qualify for that position of apostleship. The first is that you had to have been a physical witness of the risen Christ. So if you didn't get to see Jesus risen, uh, you didn't qualify for apostleship. The second was that you had to have been explicitly, clearly, vocally chosen by the Holy Spirit. And third, You had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. Now, the responsibility of these specific apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20, it also tells us that the, 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 the purpose of this type of apostleship was to lay down the foundations of the church, meaning the early church hadn't been properly established. Apostles were established. Jesus chose them so that the church could properly be set up and established. This means that once the church was established in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and the apostles eventually died out, so too did the authoritative office of the apostles. There are no apostles in this sense anymore. Uh, You might come across people in the evangelical world that will claim to have apostleship. Uh, These are what we call false teachers. Um, the Pope is someone who claims apostleship as well in the Catholic Church. Um, that's, they believe in what's called apostolic authority. They believe that there was a lineage that came down from the Apostle Peter, who was the rock on which Jesus built his church, and they believe that it was a lineage that traces its way to Pope Francis today. Uh, there is no biblical foundation for that. Um, there's not really a historical foundation for that either. And, yeah, no apostles today uh, in that sense. But we are called to be sent. And so, bearing this in mind, I want to make a few observations about today's passage. uh, Because whilst the authoritative office and title of the apostles don't exist anymore today, uh, there are elements relating to apostleship that are synonymous with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the first observation that I want to make from today's passage is that King Jesus desires you to be with him. King Jesus desires you to be with him. For the apostles in today's passage, Jesus appoints them to this authoritative office or title of apostleship. And in any other industry, this would have been a title of prestige. Like if you're working for a finance company and you're, you're, you're nominated to the board of directors, that's, there's something some level of prestige that comes with that. Uh, But verse 14 tells us that the primary purpose of the apostles was not prestige, but it was to be with him, according to verse 14. And this principle isn't just for the apostles, but it's for all disciples of Jesus. Our primary role as Christians is to be with him. Isn't that interesting? It means it doesn't matter whether you're an apostle a prophet, a pastor, deacon, elder, or a lay member of a church, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, the most important thing you can do is to be with him. Make sure that you spend time with him. If you're a father, mother, son, daughter, student, or an employee of a company, the most important thing you can do as an ambassador of Christ is make sure that you spend time with him, that that time never gets compromised. And I think one of the most well, one of the reasons, rather, uh, that this is given as a primary purpose of not just apostles but of God's people, is because you can fake everything else. The scriptures show that you can fake worship. Matthew fifteen eight: This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts. are what? Their hearts are far from me. You can fake prayer. Matthew 6.5 When you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. And you know what? I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 12 years now. Uh, I dare say that you can even fake ministry. You can even fake preaching. As long as you hammer and master the art and craft of preaching. You can fake preaching. Shocking, isn't it? But according to scripture, the one thing that you cannot fake is having a heart to be alone with God. And you know what? Out of the 12 apostles that Jesus chooses in today's passage, you could say that the reason that Jesus, who's at the end of the list, ended up betraying Jesus. You could say that one of the reasons was because he failed in keeping his primary purpose, to be with him. But you know what is cool? It's that before our desire to be with him, uh, verse 14, or verse 13 rather, reveals that he desired to be with us. He desired his apostles before he called them. Jesus called to him, it says, the apostles that what? That he desired. And you might think, well, okay, that, that, that's exclusive for the apostles, isn't it? That's not relevant to all Christians everywhere. No. The rest of the New Testament testifies to this truth as well. Ephesians 1, four, Even as he, he what? He chose us in him before the foundation of the earth before Genesis 1 he already chose you and desired you. John 15:16 Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 2 Thessalonians 2:13 2, the apostle Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. To know that the creator of the universe, the triune Godhead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of David, the God of Moses, to know that this God desires us, not just an affiliation with us, not just to slap the armband of Christian, but desires us as individuals. That is a crazy truth that we should meditate on every day before we pray. Reminding yourself that the creator of the universe desires you should shape your desire to be with him. It should shape your desire to spend time with him, to hear from him, and to desire to pray to him. Jesus desires to be with you. Point number two, being with the king means to serve the kingdom. Another aspect of apostleship that's synonymous with all disciples is that we are all called to be sent or to serve. Uh, Being with Jesus and serving Jesus aren't two separate things. We heard testimonies from the last two weeks of uh, people from this congregation that went on missions to Vanuatu and Fiji, I think it was. Um, And I mentioned after uh, that if you ever get a chance to go on missions, go. If this church ever gives you an opportunity, if anyone ever asks you, do you want to go on missions, don't even think about it. Just say, yes, I will go. Uh, I would, this might sound controversial, I would say, don't even bother praying about it before you give your answer. Um, and I'm not saying that prayers is a waste of time or prayer has no purpose, but the reason I say that is because the command for God's people to go has already been given in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, go into all the nations, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That command was issued 2,000 years ago. It seemed a bit redundant for us to Sit here now and pray. Do you really, really want me to go? Like, I know it's written in your word, but are you being serious? So, if you do get get an opportunity to go, go. And, you know, the other reason I say to go is because there is something very special about serving God, especially on the mission field. Because if you put all the pros and cons on paper, uh, it doesn't really stack up. On paper, to be a pleasant experience. Um, I went, I used to go on short term missions to Indonesia, and I don't function well in hot weather. <laughs> um, but I remember Indonesia was hot, it was tiring, it was a foreign environment. Uh, it's like 99.95% Islamic, uh, it's a Muslim demographic, uh, it's a foreign culture. I was very much out of my comfort zone. Um, The food is very different to anything I'd ever seen because we went to a very third world part of Indonesia. Um, But there was an unspeakable joy that the whole team, and anyone that goes on missions will come to testify. There is an unspeakable joy that you experience, an unexplainable joy that you experience in the midst of all that suffering. And I think it's because as you're out of your comfort zone, you begin to learn to lean upon the arms of Jesus like never before. And as you lean upon God more than ever before, his presence will feel real, more real than ever before. And as his presence starts to feel more tangible and more real, you'll find that your prayers will be answered in a way like never before. God will feel like he's right there, like he's like this with you guys if you're on the mission field. And you know what? This is the reason why Jesus promises, gives a promise in Matthew 28. Because if you read the final words of Matthew 28, the final words of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives a promise. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's an amazing promise. I'll be with you always until the end of the age, until your existence and the existence of this universe ceases. I will be with you always. But like I mentioned last week, context is key. The context of this promise must be understood to truly comprehend and take in this promise. Because what is the context? The context is the Great Commission Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reality of God's presence will be experienced in the midst of service. And you know what? It's not just in the mission field, but in service of God's kingdom and the church I've been in ministry for over 10 years now and I've met countless people over the years uh, and nothing against them, but I've met people that have come up to me and said, you know what, I, I, I just want to come and be served. Um, if I ask them, what do you want to serve, where do you want to serve in this year, they'll, they'll respond with something like, you know what, this year, I just want to receive. I just want uh, to be fed with God's word. I just want to receive and be served and then, um, you know, we'll see what happens. And you know, I, I get where they're coming from. I get that they want to spend some time learning and growing in a knowledge of God. And so that once they, they spiritually reach a good place, then maybe they'll consider serving and giving back. However, that is actually countercultural to how the scriptures instruct God's people to live. Because serving God. And serving our neighbor according to the scriptures is inextricably linked with what it means to follow God and follow Christ and to become like Christ. Mark 10.25, and whoever would be first among you must be what? A slave or a servant of all. For even the Son of Man came to not be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom for an opportunity of the flesh, but through love. Do what? Serve. Serve one another. Mark 9.35, the words of Jesus. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. A servant of all. There is a popular saying in the evangelical world that 90% of the work that's done in church is done by 10% of the people And I don't know about FLM because it's only my third week here, but if the trend of church ministries across Sydney is anything to go by, there probably is an element of truth to it here as well. Um, But my exhortation and encouragement for you to serve isn't to burden you, it's not to guilt trip you, uh, but to encourage you. Because remember that promise from Matthew 28, that he will be with us until the end of the age. You will get a taste, a real tangible taste of the presence of God when you serve. And it's when you respond to Jesus in obedience and live with a servant heart that you'll really start to feel more and more closer to God than ever before. And so those are the two points I want to wrap up with. Uh, the first is that King Jesus desires you to be with him. Just meditate on that promise this week, just that revelation that God desires you. Like before you desire him, before you try to do something to you know, win brownie points with God, he desires you as you are. Look at the 12 apostles that we saw. These were very rough, rugged men, sons of thunder, God desired them and the scripture's promise that God desires us. And secondly, being with King Jesus means serving his kingdom. And I encourage 2023 to be a year where you seek opportunities to serve not just for the ministry for the sake of the ministry, but for the sake of experiencing a real tangible presence of God in your life. So, in this moment, I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer. I don't know what your plans were for 2023, uh, but maybe you wanted to be served this year. Uh, Maybe you just wanted to spend a bit of time spiritually getting to a good place before you consider sacrifice or any level of service. Uh, But as mentioned, that's countercultural to what the scriptures teach us. And so in this moment, uh, if this is you, I encourage you to spend a bit of time meditating on today's passage and laying it down at the foot of the cross. If you are in a position where you need your heart shaped, ask and invite the Spirit of God to begin a work of transformation in your heart beginning from today. And pray that as you grow day by day into the form of a servant, that you would be able to come to the end of this year in December and look back and testify to the truth of this passage, that in the midst of your service, that you got to experience a tangible encounter with the Lord Jesus a presence of God like never before. Let's pray. Father, we repent if we have ever had a heart that was purely just self-seeking. Father, help us to understand through the scriptures that what you desire of your people is for us to desire to be with you and us to desire a life of service. Father, as we look to King Jesus, help us not just to see King Jesus as some faraway king that is separate from his creation, but as we see in today's passage, Christ is someone that walks amongst his people. And as we look to the king, help us to understand that he's not a faraway king, He's not a king that just desires us to serve, but that Jesus is revealed as the ultimate servant king. And so, Lord, if we are ever going to embark on an endeavor to become like Christ, Father, help us to emulate him in this area, the life of a servant, a life of sacrifice, a life that is spent with Christ from day to day, and it's in his name we pray, amen.